Good morning. Uh, my name is Brett Flora, and I want to get uh, welcome you to the gathering here at Pangborn Elementary, the gathering of Hagerstown Church. I'm one of the members here, and it is with true expectation and joy that I'm able to open up the Word of God this morning and proclaim its truths to you. And so this morning, we're going to plant our feet firmly in the beginning of John's Gospel. And for us as a church, the beginning of a brand new sermon series entitled God With Us. And so be excited for that. But before we jump into that, I want to spend just a few minutes kind of recapping how we got to where we are this morning. And so for the past nine weeks, we as a church have been focusing on the sermon series Prepare the Way and looking how God intervenes in the lives of his covenant people. We've seen things like a man who was cast into the sea, yet he was undrowned. We've seen men cast into a fiery furnace, yet unburned. We've seen a man cast into a den of lions, that man called Daniel, and yet he was unscathed by those lions. And maybe most miraculously of all, we saw an entire people cast into exile, yet not abandoned by their covenant God. And so if you've been with us these past nine weeks, you have seen how God has woven the tapestry of history. Week after week, we have opened up the word of God, and week after week, we have seen how his perfect plan unfolds. If you've been with us as a church body, you'll know that we read through the F260 plan. It's a, it's a reading plan designed for us to see the overall arc of history from Genesis to Revelation. And so I pray that it's been a blessing to you to see that story of God working through his people to accomplish one goal, and that is the glory of his name and the good of his people. And so God's story has been unfolding since the beginning of time. And you may, be, you may realize, but all stories have what's called a rising action. It's a series of events that brings us in anticipation and, and builds us to the climax of the story. And God's story is no different. If you've been with us, you'll know that we have seen how God used the mouths of the prophets to proclaim that God would bring about a final salvation of his people through the coming of the Messiah. But if you've also been with us, you'll know that those mouths and those prophets were not just the first time that we ever heard about the coming of the Messiah. No, we actually see it all the way back in Genesis 3. If you peruse our sermon library, you'll notice that it's almost been seven months to the day that Pastor Josh preached from Genesis 3 and the revealing of a Savior that was to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And so from Genesis to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we see God again and again reminding his people that a Savior is coming. Be ready. The way has been prepared. Are, are you ready to receive your Savior? Last week, Pastor Tim preached from the book of Malachi. In chapter 3, and he read these words, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But then something strange happens after Malachi. All we have is silence, complete and utter silence. And you can see this silence reflected in your Bibles. If you turn to the last page of Malachi and you turn one page over to the right, you've actually skipped 400 years into the future. And so there was no word from the Lord during that time. 
And because of that, there was no word from the prophets and no scripture for us to read today. Just complete and utter silence. The God that had promised that a Savior was coming was seemingly nowhere to be found. And so you have to be wondering, what were the people during this time thinking? Has God abandoned his promises? Has, has he decided to not keep his promises after all? Where is the messenger that he promised in Malachi 3? Where is, where is the Lord that is supposed to come to his temple? But we know as Christians that God is not slack in keeping his promises. And in fact, it is not possible for him to break his promises because he is faithful to himself. And so we're going to see today that God did indeed speak into the silence of those 400 years. And he indeed was going to send the messenger. And after that, that he would send the Lord himself, the Messiah. And so all of human history finds its culmination in the coming Messiah. And it's in this culmination that we find ourselves this morning. We're going to see that we exist as human beings for one reason and one reason alone, to worship, savor, and see the Lord Jesus, the Messiah who has come. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. And you may ask why. Why is he worthy of our worship? Why is he worthy for us to throw all aside and follow him alone? Why is he worthy for us to make him the center of our lives? Well, let's find out. And so if you have your Bible, I'd like to ask you to open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screens behind me. But we'll be reading John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 18. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 18. Hear now the words of the true and living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, your words are true. And we believe that they're the only sure foundation that we have in this world. And so we pray that you would help us to understand them better in this passage this morning. Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and that you would open our hearts to the truths of this passage. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. And so as we work through the beginnings of John's gospel this morning, I want to show you three ideas that are found within the text. And so if you're a note taker this morning, and I see a lot of you are, you can write down these three main points. The word as God, the word as man, and the word as Savior. Again, the word as God, the word as man, and the word as Savior. And so the word is God. Now before we begin, and I, I don't want to get through the get into the etymological weeds here per se, but I do think it's very important that we discuss what the word word means. And so in the Greek it's the word logos. Y'all didn't think you're gonna get a Greek lesson this morning. But in the in the Bible is uh, the word is logos, and, and logos can mean different things to different people. And so John's a writer, and he's a good writer, so that means he's gonna be very intentional about the words that he chooses to pen. And so if you were a Greek reading this gospel in the first century, you would have been familiar with the word logos. To the Greek, it was this theoretical, rational principle that was said to be behind the way the world works. And if you were a Jew, perhaps a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, then the logos, the logos of God, the word of God, would have had significance as well. If you just take the time to scour the Old Testament, you'll see, you'll, you'll, I ask you to see how many times the phrase word of God or word of the Lord appears. I've saved you some time. It's 276 times. 276 times that the phrase word of God or word of the Lord appears. And so whether you were a Greek or whether you were a Jew, the logos, the word, had significance But John's going to do something interesting in this passage. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to turn that definition upside down. He's going to show that it's not just a rational principle. And it's not just simply a vocal utterance that comes out of my mouth. But rather, it refers to a real and specific person. A real and specific person. And so when you hear the word word today, think person. You'll even see that reflected in your Bibles with that big capital W showing us that this is indeed a person. And so with that word study under our belts, let's jump into the text. As we were reading it, you might have noticed that John kind of structures this this prologue, this opening section, with a couple of theological bookends. It's as if John is saying, everything that I'm about to tell you is held up by this one enormous truth. It's one enormous truth on both sides of this passage. And so let's look at what it is. And so starting in verse 1, again it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John begins writing by stating that 
the word was in the beginning. And so he's communicating to his audience that the word was from all eternity. That he already existed before there was a beginning. And so you could say there never was a time when the word was not. There was one commentator that said that, that the world was from the beginning, but the word was in the beginning. The world was from the beginning, but the word was in the beginning. And you may notice some parallels between this and what is said at the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis. In the beginning, God. And so we see the same thing happening here with John. In the beginning was the word. John's being intentional here. He's trying to say something. He's trying to, to direct our attention to this major truth that is upholding this entire passage. And so not only did the word exist before time and space, but John also says that he was with God. What does that mean? It, it means that he existed with God from all eternity. It means that he had intimate fellowship with God from all eternity. Imagine the closest relationship that you've ever had and then multiply that by infinity and you start to understand the closeness of the relationship that the word had with God. And so this word predates existence this word had fellowship with God from eternity past. And just as if John could not be any more clear about the nature of this word, this logos, he pins the words, and the word was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Another way to say this is that the word was equal to God, or that the word was on the same plane as God. In every way that God was God, so was the Word. And John's going to use the next three verses that you'll see in your Bible to kind of give some evidences for why the Word is God. And so God has always existed. He is eternal. And so we also see the same could be said for the Word in verse 2. Look at it with me. He was in the beginning with God. God is the creator of all things. Nothing exists without God making it. And so we also see the same can be said for the word in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Only God has life in himself. Only God is self-existence, self-existent. That is to say that only God is not dependent on outside forces for his life. I'm dependent on many things to stay alive. But God has life in himself. And so we see the same can be said for the word in verse 4. In him was life. And in short, in this first bookend, we see that the word is the eternal, self-existent creator. This is a high view of the word. Now skip down with me to verse 18. The second bookend of this passage. And it reads, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so here again, the word is referred to as God. But, but John uses a little bit more explanation and says that he's the only God who's at the Father's side. If you're paying attention with me this morning, you'll see that that we actually see two-thirds of the Trinity here in action. 
we see the Father, and we see who John refers to as the only God who's at the Father's side. And what do you see as you read with me that the Word is doing? What is his mission? What is his role? It says that he's making the Father known. He has made him known. Now the Greek root word for this is exieme. Don't let that freak you out. But it just means to explain or to interpret something. And so one of the roles I have as a preacher this Sunday is to open up the word of God and explain it to you that you may better understand it. And so in a much grander and beautiful way, the word explains who God is. If you want to know what God is like, then let the word show you. He explains and interprets the Father. In the word, we have the full disclosure of who God is. And you may be wondering, what makes the word so equipped to do that? I can't make the Father be known. I wouldn't know the Father existed unless he told me. But the Word is able to make the Father known. And how does he do that? Well, it goes back to what the opening truth of this passage is. The theological bookend. The Word is God. And so who else would be duly equipped to explain God to us except God himself? And so we see that the bookends that John goes out of his way to explain to us is the major truth that the word is God. And we can't miss that this morning. The word is God. If we miss this point, if we miss this truth, then all the books on the mantelpiece will fall down. It doesn't matter how we stack them up. If the word is not God, then we have no Christian faith. If the word is not God then we have no Christian faith. Now up to this point, I've been very careful to refer to the word as the word, because that's what John does. But I think it's time to allow John to shed a little bit more light on who this character is. And so verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so we see that Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of all things. If you want to have a fuller, a better, and a deeper understanding of who God is, then study with delight the person of Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. And Jesus was life. Now let's take a step back for a second. When you think of Jesus, is this the Jesus that comes to mind? When you think of Jesus, is this the Jesus that comes to mind? If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, what kind of ideas did you bring with you? I admit that there's a lot of them out there. If I was to go into Hagerstown, the downtown area this this afternoon where I happen to live, 
and I asked 10 people, who was Jesus? There's a possibility that I may get 10 different answers. Is Jesus just another spiritual teacher that has walked the earth? Is, is Jesus no different than Confucius or Muhammad or the Buddha? Is there no difference? So how do you grapple with the text that, you, that we've seen so far? I humbly submit that we cannot be on the fence about who Jesus is. What we believe about him matters. And so if, if you came in this morning not really sure about who Jesus was, or if you came in this morning and you thought that you knew exactly who Jesus was, I ask you to allow the truths of Scripture to shape the way you think about him. And if you're a believer here this morning, may I ask you, do you find yourself meditating on the deity of Christ often? And I don't say that to condemn you, but to offer an opportunity for for growth and and self-reflection in your life. What does it mean to you that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament? It's so easy for us as Christians to, to view this wonderful truth as simply something to bring with us in apologetic circles. To use this truth as just something to win an argument with or to win a debate with. You know, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are in fact confessing that he is God. And so I ask, do our lives reflect the confession that we make? That Jesus is Lord. Do you live like Jesus is the Lord of your life? If you struggle in certain areas to submit to the Lordship of Christ this morning, may I just make the point that your understanding of Christ's divinity is not big enough. Jesus is a big God. And I pray that you would see that this morning and that it would change the way that you live your life as a believer There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Do we live like that as Christians? Brandon mentioned in the giving section of the announcements that we give because God is the Lord of our money. And so in what ways, as believers, does that need to reflect the way that we live our lives? Maybe it's the way we use our money. But there's a hundred different other ways that should come under the lordship of Christ, who is God. And so I pray that you would do the hard work of self-examination this morning, which oftentimes is not a fun thing to do. And I will admit that it's hard for me to do that as well, to examine my life, to uncover the things that I don't necessarily want to see. And so we have looked at the truth that the Word is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so now let's turn our attention to the Word as man. Point number two, the Word as man. And so again, our new sermon series is entitled, God With Us. And here we come to the reason why we called it that. In some ways, it can be said that God has always been with us, and so you may be thinking that, The title, God with us, may seem to state the obvious a little bit or to be a little bit redundant. 
God has always been with his people. We've seen it as we read through the Old Testament. But as we're going to see in verse 14, which we're going to unpack, it's through the word, through Jesus Christ, that God is with us in a way that no one could have ever predicted, no one could have ever assumed would be the case, and no one could have ever just made up in their minds. It is an absolute miracle that we will look at here in verse 14. So follow along with me. Verse 14 reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation, folks. The entering of God into his own creation. All the rising action that I talked about in the beginning was leading into this moment. This is the climax of the story. The entering of God into his own creation. One person writes that, in my opinion, this is the single greatest sentence ever written in the history of the human language. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the creator of the universe becomes a human like you and me. I ask you, church, does that cause wonder to stir in your heart? That the creator of the universe became a human like us. The eternal creator of the universe became a baby who was totally dependent on his mother for nurture and protection. The creator of time and space becomes bound by the very things that he created. Does that cause wonder to stir in your heart? There's an illustration from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, that I want to borrow. If you've not read that book, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy. You will not be disappointed. If you are, I guess you can come see me. But it is a really good book, and I encourage you to pick up a copy. But in it, God compares God to, or Keller compares God to, a playwright, someone who's wrote the quote-unquote play of human history. And he says that if God exists, if there is a God, that he wouldn't be just another object that we could go out into the universe and find. We couldn't just use empirical means to find God. No, in, in the same way that Hamlet couldn't go into his castle and discover Shakespeare. He just wouldn't find him. Keller says that the only way that we can know that God exists and the only way that Hamlet would ever know that Shakespeare existed was that if the author, the playwright, wrote information into the play about him, if he relayed information to his characters about his existence, and indeed we see evidence of God's existence all around us. But that existence or that evidence is not enough to save us. A happy agnostic is still an unsaved agnostic. And so we see that the greatest evidence of God's existence is in the person of Jesus Christ because it's only in Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And so God literally wrote himself into the play of human history and became the main character of the play. In short, that is what it means that the word became flesh. Does this fact and this truth cause wonder stir in your heart, church. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so if you've not been with me up until this point, I encourage you to bring yourself back in, train your mind to focus in in these next few minutes because I want to show you a glimpse 
of the glory of God. When I was preparing for this sermon and I was reading this text, it was, it was as if the sermon or the text just came alive and jumped out at me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before in your study of the Bible, but it happened to me, and so I want to share what I saw pertaining to this idea of dwelling. And so the word dwelt among us, right? In the Greek, that just means that he made a tent among us. And so you could say that the word became flesh and made a tent among us. Now follow me back to the Old Testament with that in mind. Remember, like I said at the beginning, all of human history, all of the Old Testament finds its culmination in the coming of the Messiah, the Word becoming flesh, becoming the man, Christ Jesus. And so if you would, would you turn with me to Exodus 33 real quick? Keep your finger in John 1. We'll go right back to it here in a second. It'll also be up on the screen for you. As you're turning there, I want to give some context where we're at. So again, if you've gone through the F260 plan with us as a church, you'll know that we read through this a few months ago. The Israelites are in the wilderness. They've left Egypt, and they've had their glorious time in the presence of God at Mount Sinai. But in Exodus 33, we see some of the aftermath of the sin that the people committed by disobeying God and worshiping the golden calf that they made. Now before that and through that, Moses had been in communion with God. And in fact, he was the only one allowed to be in communion with God. And so the sin of the people was so egregious that God's not going to completely abandon talking with Moses, but he's going to move the location of that talking way outside the camp because the sin of the people, the idolatry of the people was so egregious. If you're familiar with the Old Testament history, you'll know that eventually the tabernacle is built, and then eventually after that, the temple is built. But in the beginning, when it was just Moses and God talking, they met in a tent aptly called the Tent of Meeting. And so with that, if you'll pick up following along with me in verse 7. The Word of God says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so what is the glory of God that I want to share with you this morning? It is the fact that just as God, just as Moses would set up his tent and God would speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friends, so Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus made his tent among us. And he spoke to us face to face as a man speaks to his friends. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tent of meeting. He is the fulfillment of this Old Testament story. He is the presence of God come down to us. He dwelt with us. He lived with us. He spoke to us. And he even considered his disciples his friends. 
God spoke to Moses face to face as a man would speak to his friends. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. All scripture points to Jesus. And so friends, if you do not believe this truth this morning, let the beauty that is in front of you change your mind. Christian, as you study the word of God on on a daily basis, I pray that this would influence the way that you approach the Bible. All scripture points to Jesus. He says so as much in Luke 24. That he began starting with Moses and going through the prophets, all the things concerning himself. The Bible points to Jesus. And so when you study the Bible, let that reality influence the way that you approach the word of God. And so the word dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I showed you a glimpse of the glory of God, but what is the glory of God? We, we, it's one of those phrases that we use a lot in Christian circles, but if someone came up to you and asked you to define, what's the glory of God? I think it would be a little harder than we might like to admit. What is the glory of God? Now we're talking about God here, and so the concept of this will be hard for us to completely grasp, but I think one pastor gets pretty close when he says that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. It's God's holiness on display. We see this reflected in the book of Hebrews when the writer says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so God's glory was on display in the person of Jesus in two ways. It it was seen visibly with the eyes. Think of the miracles that Jesus did. Sometimes you even see that when he did a miracle, the writer, whether it be John or, or Matthew or someone else, will say, and the glory of God was seen. So we see the glory of God and the miracles that Jesus did, but we also saw it in an even grander visible way on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that mountain that Jesus took a select few of his disciples, the inner circle, if you will, of which John, the writer of this gospel, was one of. And they saw the visible heavenly glory of Christ displayed for just a few seconds. And so Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. But he also embodied it not in visible ways, but in, eter- in internal ways. And, and we saw his glory with the eyes of her heart in the interactions that Jesus had with man. You see, that Jesus is the embodiment of God's mercy and grace and love. Jesus is the truth of God come down to us. He's the holiness and moral goodness of God. And he even is the wrath and severity of God, as we see in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. He is God's glory come down to us, the radiance of the glory of God. And so we've seen that the word is God and that the word is man. But why does this all matter? 
Why are we here this morning? You could have easily looked some of this information up. So why, why are we here? I can promise you that it matters a great deal. And in fact, that these, tru- these two truths that the word is God and the word is man matter so much that our own salvation depends on it. You see, Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God, yet he's fully man. And it's only because of this mysterious reality that we will never completely understand that Jesus and Jesus alone is suited and equipped to be our Savior. And so the word as Savior. I want to end our time in the text by looking at verses 10 through 13. And so if you want to follow along with me, starting in verse 10, going through verse 13. John writes, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word came to this world nearly 2,000 years ago, to the very world that he made. And so you would think that the creator of the universe coming to the earth would be coupled with great pomp and circumstance. But that's not what we see in the text. It says the world didn't even know him. And I would say that that's a tragedy, that the world did not know the arrival of its God. If you're a believer here this morning, does the utter lostness of the world and a lack of a saving knowledge of Christ right here in Hagerstown, does that cause emotions to stir in your heart that cause you to respond, that people would know that the Messiah has come, that we are able to know who Christ is. Do you react like Paul did when he was walking through the streets of Athens and he came across altars that the Greeks had inscribed these words to the unknown God? Folks, God can be known. And he, he, he can be known because he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you, as a Christian who has been called to fulfill the Great Commission, that you would go with that undergirding all of what you do. The world needs to know who Christ is. We don't worship an unknown God. He has revealed himself perfectly and completely that we would be able to know him. And so not only did the world in general not know him, but it even says that his own people did not receive him. And if the, the fact that the world did not know the arrival of the Messiah was a tragedy, and the fact that his own people did not know it either is a tragedy of tragedies. His own people, the Jews, the Israelites of old, they didn't know him either. And John says that they didn't receive him. And it's not like they were just ho-hum about it. Like, you, just, you, you do you, Jesus. You know, we'll just do our thing. They actually rejected him. Jesus was a Jew, and he was rejected by the Jewish people. They rejected him, and they killed him. 
The Jewish leaders who had the entire Old Testament at their disposal, they should have known that the Messiah was coming. And they should have been ready to receive him. It's not as if the prophets failed to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. We see things like in Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Even the lesser-known prophet Micah says, But to you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Even the messenger himself, John the Baptist, who we see in our text this morning, even he prepared the way. We saw in verse 16 as we read it at the beginning, That he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist, the messenger of Malachi 3, who we referenced last week, he didn't fail to prepare the way. And so the Jews should have been ready to receive their king, but instead many of them dropped the ball. You might say that the way had not been prepared in their hearts and that their minds were hardened and were unable to receive their king. And so I pray to you this morning, no, you're not of Jewish descent, at least I don't think you are. But if you've been in church your whole life and you've heard the words of God your whole life, I pray that you have not dropped the ball like the Jewish people did who had the entire Old Testament at their disposal. Again, Jesus Christ can be known. And we live in the 21st century, and we look back and say the Messiah has come. And so we call people to receive him for who he is. Now, it should be said that by God's grace, there were some Jews who did receive Jesus. And by God's grace, we see in the Bible that many will, before it's all said and done, many more Jews will receive Jesus as Messiah. And so what does it mean to receive Jesus? That's another one of those words that we can't get wrong. Just as we can't get wrong the idea that the word is God, we can't be mistaken about what it means to receive Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so what does it mean? First, it means to accept him for who he truly is, the word made flesh. To receive Jesus as anyone but almighty God is not to receive him at all. Because the word became flesh. God became man. And so secondly, it means to believe on the, in the work that he has done on man's behalf. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and for his entire life as the, as the human Jesus, who he is still today, by the way. He never once sinned. He never sinned in action. And a lot harder, I think for all of us, He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in action and he never sinned in thought. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God, all except Jesus. And so he lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live, and he died a perfect death, the death that we 
deserved to die. Jesus, the creator of the trees, was crucified on the very tree that he created. But thanks be to God, we see that death could not hold Jesus. And we see that he rose from the dead and he reigns victorious over death. And how is he able to do that? How is he able to overcome death? Verse 4 of John 1, in him was life. You think someone who had life in himself would be able to conquer death? I think so. Death had no hold on the Christ as he rose from the dead on the third day. And so you see, in all that Jesus was and all that he is, it was necessary that Jesus be both God and man. And here we get to the crux of the first two points of the sermon. Why was it necessary that he be both God and man? It was necessary that he be fully God because only God could bear the infinite wrath against sin. And only God could bear the penalty of sins from every single person who would ever believe on him. Only God could do that. But it was also necessary that he be man because only Christ as a man could represent man to God. Only a man can represent man. Only as a man could he take our place on the cross. Again, only a man can substitute for man. And so we see that it was necessary that he be fully man because it was necessary that he be fully God and fully man because it's only through the God-man that we can be saved. And so I call on you to receive this Jesus this morning, the Jesus that we have read in the scriptures. Receive him as Lord and Savior of your life. Repent of your sins and place your trust in him. Flee from your sins and flee to Christ instead. Only Jesus has the right to make you a child of God. We have to recognize that we have nothing to offer him. We have to recognize that we and our own efforts will never be able to accomplish the saving of ourselves. You can see that in verse 13. Three times, John denies the ability to affect this change in our lives. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. No, no, no. We're not able to save ourselves. But then it says, who are born of God. So it is through the God-man that we can be saved. We can't save ourselves, but the God-man can. And so parents here this morning, know first that despite your efforts that you will never be able to save your children. And I know that you wish that you could some days. But take faith that the God-man is able. He is able to save your children, and so point your children to him. In Hubtown Kids, we point our children to Jesus every week. Why? Because he's the God-man. And it's only through the God-man that we can be saved. For those who have family members far from God this morning, again, recognize that you will never be able to save your family, but there is still hope. I know that you wish you could. I myself have family members far from God. But the God-man is able to save 
your family. And so point your family to him. Intercede on behalf of your family to the God-man who is able to save to the uttermost. And if you're already a believer here this morning, I hope that this message has not been lost on you. I hope you see the value of this message. Take hope that it is God who caused you to be born again. And it is God who will preserve you to the very end. Take hope that it is Christ who works in you and through you to accomplish all his will as you seek to do his. If you've been a faithful follower of Jesus for a long time, be encouraged and reminded that Christ is your mediator. He stands between God the Father and you, interceding on your behalf. And so because of him, you have access to the throne of grace. You can boldly approach the throne of God because you are counted as a child of God. And what father would not want his child to come as close as possible to him? It is only in Christ that we are able to approach. Be encouraged that the father loves you. And so rest in Jesus. And when, and when we sin, which we all do every single day, be encouraged that when God says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, he is able to say that because Christ has already done all the work on the cross. And so we can approach the throne of God in complete confidence that when we confess our sins, we will be forgiven. Not because of any works that we have done, not because of any of our efforts, but because of what the God-man has already done. And so as we close here today, I want to leave you with a poem that was written by a Christian a long, long time ago. And then one final word. This poem was written with the incarnation in mind, the creator becoming a man, the word becoming flesh. And some may say that the idea that God would become a man is just a simple, shameful notion. Why would God who is so far above us, degrade himself by becoming a man. In fact, that's one of the main heresies that the early church had to face, the idea of Gnosticism, that Jesus wasn't truly a man. No one would, God would never be a true man. That's despicable. But to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom and glory of God that he would become a man because it's only through the God-man that we can be saved. And so as I read this poem, I ask you, church, that you would simply wonder in awe with me. That man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain might thirst. That the light might sleep. That the way be tired on his journey. That the truth might be accused of false witness the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life, life itself, the one in whom life was, that he might die. And so I want to be honest with you here this morning. The goal of this message and the reason that I have delivered this message is that I'm making an appeal to you to believe on the Lord Jesus. And that appeal is for you wherever you are this morning. 
Whether you're not a follower of Christ, whether you've been a faithful follower for decades, the application is the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on him. My desire for you is the same as the Apostle John's was. Near the end of the Gospel of John, which we'll spend a lot more time in in the upcoming weeks, he writes these words. He says that I have wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in his name. There is no life outside of Christ. But in Christ, the eternal word of God, there is life everlasting. If you reject Jesus, then the God-man is of no use to you. And it is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God has prepared a way that that would not have to happen. You see, what God requires, Christ provides. And so if you receive Jesus, then the God-man is of much use to you, and he is of eternal use to you. And so blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so would you pray with me? Father, you love the world so much that you sent your only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Lord, you did not have to do that. You told our first parents that if we were to disobey, that the consequence would be death. And yet, you showed us mercy in allowing us to live. And not only that, you showed us grace in promising that a Savior would come who would crush the head of the serpent and, and save us from our sins, Lord. And so we thank you that we live in a time where we can say confidently that he has come. We're thankful that we worship and serve a God whose promises never fail, even when he seems far from us. And so we thank you, Jesus, for becoming a man, becoming the God-man, Lord, and being that God-man even today as you intercede for us in heaven on our behalf Lord, thank you for showing grace and mercy to us. And we pray that this world, this country, and the city that we live in, Hagerstown, we pray that this knowledge of the Messiah who has come, who has made it possible that we would be delivered from our sins and live the life that we were always meant to live, we pray that that would become a reality here as we meet and gather every single week, Lord. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.